Pages of Pim Better Podcast. What's up, Voyagers? Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 96. It has been a hot minute since I've checked in with you. I think the last time that I recorded, I was in Honolulu on Oahu in Hawaii. I'm not going to do a full sort of recap of the last month just yet because I want to make sure that this episode sort of focuses on the guests that I have and the place that I am in. The place that I am in right now is Tampa, Florida. I guess technically I'm in a suburb of Tampa, not Tampa proper. But while here, I had heard a little bit of information about how quite recently, I suppose, they discovered some or rediscovered some underground tunnels in Ybor City, which um, after doing some reading and some learning, appear to have been used in the past for bootlegging and for human trafficking. My guest, who uh, is Scott Deach, he said that they were actually initially created for drainage because this is quite a wet and swampy area, but that once organized crime came sort of into prominence, those tunnels were used for more illicit means. So my guest is an historian and an expert on mafia, mob, organized crime activity in the United States. One of his books, which is the book that I read while here, is Cigar City Mafia, A Complete History of the Tampa Underworld. It's really fascinating. We get into some of the history, well, a lot of the history. We couldn't give a full, you know, chronological history of all of the events because uh, we had limited time and his book is quite, quite dense. There's a lot of murder in here. There's a lot of sort of um, family turnover, family takeovers. Uh, and he gets, he gets into all the nitty gritty of that. So I recommend reading the book or at the very least checking it out at your library. But I know it's on, it's on Amazon and you can check the show notes for this episode to get information. But again, it is Cigar City Mafia. And it is uh, it's fascinating. You know, I think being from New York, coming from the North... Being a Yankee, I was a bit biased about Florida and coming to Florida, uh, but I've been discovering a lot of really interesting and cool stuff while I'm here. So I'm going to read you a quick passage from the book. This is one of the <laughs> one of the many murders that take place in the book um, and in the, the actual history of the region, but this is Mario Perla kind of getting taken out. So here we go. When Mario Perla served out his five-year sentence for his part in the arson ring that was also responsible for the murders of Angelo Lazara and Gus Perez, he rejoined the numbers racket and made his presence known in the Tampa underworld. Perla was the right-hand man of Ignazio Antonori, along with Joe Pino Caceres. Perla also had ties through Antonori, to Cuban President Gerardo Machado. When Machado was ousted from power in 1933, Perla helped smuggle the Cuban from Nassau through Tampa and up to New York. Perla jumped back into the numbers following his release, landing right in the middle of the Bolita War. On the evening of October 17, 1939, Perla was driving home with his wife when a black, late model Ford V8 sedan slowly approached from the rear. The vehicle waded until Perla and his wife crossed an intersection. 
then sped up to get alongside them. They fired the first shot through the rear window, aiming at Perla's head. The sedan then pulled ahead of Mario's car and fired another shot through the driver's side door. After the first shot, Mrs. Perla had ducked down in the seat and urged her husband to do the same. However, he had already been hit. After the second shot, the gunmen pulled ahead and pumped two more blasts from their shotgun through the windshield before speeding away. Police quickly arrived and Perla was taken to a nearby hospital where he was pronounced dead. One of the blasts from the 20-gauge shotgun had blown a hole in his head. Witnesses say they saw two men in a Ford sedan speed away from the scene. Police set up roadblocks looking for the Ford used in the attack, but the gunman had already escaped. The case remains unsolved. One thing was certain. Perla's murder was related to the Bolita Wars that were rocking the streets. The book recounts <laughs> many similar incidents over and over again from the time of Prohibition really up to, to the present. And um, I had a great conversation with Scott. We talked about sort of the collusion and the necessity of the involvement of local police and government in ensuring that these illicit activities sort of had um, large-scale success. Really fascinating stuff. I had a great conversation with him. I'm thankful that, that he joined today. So please check out all of the links in this episode so that you can um, check out Scott, pick up the books, and give him some love. As always, folks, if you want to support this podcast, you can do so on Patreon. That is patreon.com slash the voyages of Tim Vetter. There's also a link for that in the show notes for this episode. And that is a subscription-based service where you can give uh, monthly, you know, $1, $5, $500. And all that goes to keeping these stories coming, keeping the travels going. And there's a lot more stuff coming. I know there's been like a month off here, but I've got all sorts of cool stuff scheduled and some some future travel in the in the works here. So I am going to have a song play in between this intro and the conversation. It's a little Tony Bennett. It's rags to riches. If you know why, you know why. If you don't, get back to watching uh, some more mobster movies and get back to me. All right, here's rags to riches and then my conversation with Scott. Enjoy. I know I'd go from rags to riches If you would only say you care And though my pocket may be empty I'd be a millionaire Clothes may still be torn and tattered But in my heart I'd be a king Your love is all that ever mattered It's everything And 
tell me you're mine evermore Must I forever be a beggar Whose golden dreams will not come true Or will I go from rags to riches My fate is up to you Must I forever be a beggar Whose golden dreams will not come true Or will I go from rags to riches My fate is up to I know we're limited for time, but uh, I wanted to ask you a couple things before we get into some of the history. Yeah. And um, the first is just, where did you take an interest in researching and learning about and kind of making it your, your gig or your side gig to talk about organized crime? Yeah, so uh, yeah, my, my funny stock answer is always that I grew up in New Jersey, so mm. that, you know, predisposed you, especially in the northern part of the state, to at least have a passing familiarity with its, with the topic. Mm. Um, I, honestly, I say I, it was always kind of around. My mom loved the old gangster movies, and, you know, whenever there was a mob hit or something on TV, you know, it'd make all the New York news stations, so it was always kind of around you, and I was always aware of it, but in reality, I, I credit it to... to in 1990, seeing Goodfellas in the movies, mm. and had just before that, seeing The Godfather for the first time. So that was like a one-two, and I'm like, oh, I, you know, I want to read the book that Goodfellas was based on, Wise Guy by Nick Pileggi. So I read that, and that just kind of started getting me interest in the topic in general, just to read. So I started reading a bunch of books, and somewhere around there in the early 90s, it, it went from interest to obsession. Mm. <laughs> um, then in about late 94, early 95, when, when the web was just like the Wild West and there was very, very little out there, but yeah. uh, there was a mob website run by a guy in New York. And when I mean website, I mean it was all text. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I struck up correspondence with a historian, David Critchley, in, in the UK. And he had been collecting information about organized crime and the mob for, for many years. And I relocated to St. Petersburg, Tampa area at that time. So he said, hey, I have some in information on the mob in Tampa. And I really didn't know anything about it. Um, so I'm like, yeah, I'd be, I'd be interested in reading that. So he sent me uh, a bunch of news articles and copy of the Kefauver Commission hearings from 1950, which were congressional hearings on organized crime. And one of the cities they stopped at was Tampa. Hmm. And then that got me kind of really into researching other 
families in other cities, but really into into the Tampa thing. And then I, I can't really pinpoint when the light bulb went off, but somewhere along those lines in the late 80s, I'm just like, oh, maybe I'll write a book. So that was... Uh, that, that's kind of the, the genesis, the evolution of that. So uh, I started writing a couple articles for some websites for free. And then, you know, I w- was lucky enough to land a, an agent and sold the book in 2003 and it came out in 2004. So. You touched on something interesting. I mean, Goodfellas is a masterpiece of a movie, right? Godfather 1 is like a masterpiece of a movie. And, you know, Henry Hill, I think, is a character that people watch and sort of root for. Um, you know, I mentioned before we started recording, I'm from Long Island. My dad had done a bunch of sort of like, I guess, odd type of jobs when I was growing up and he worked in trucking and like loaded trucks for a while. Uh, so he had stories about like Teamsters and things like that. Um, and he would always tell me like, Hey man, like Henry Hill was not a good guy. When, when you've done this research, have you ever thought like what it says about us, uh, maybe psychologically or like in a philosophical sense, like why we're so obsessed as a culture kind of with like learning about this type of stuff and sometimes rooting for people who have been criminals and murderers and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. I'll start by saying, though, when I started doing research in the mid-90s, I found a family story. My grandfather, paternal grandfather, was actually a bookmaker oh. for many years, and he was arrested around the time I was born and spent a little time in prison when I was a toddler. And that came out after I started doing research. It wasn't a family secret. It just it never had really come up in conversation before. But Kind of dovetailing that in, into an answer to your question, not being a psychologist, but but I can tell you what what interest is what the interest is for me, and what I think partially. If you go back even to Al Capone, mm. so you know at the core, there's kind of a mythological aspect of the gangster, but it's it's kind of that Robin Hood syndrome. It's kind of you know standing up against you know the greedy corporation, yeah. the government, the law, you know, kind of that outlaw persona, even the Wild West kind of outlaw persona that people root for because most people are not that. So you look mm-hmm. at it and be like, oh man, it'd be really cool to be that because you know you can never truly be that. Um, then I think part of it too is looking at, you know, gangsters providing vices that are really deemed uh, harmless most mostly, you know, whether it be gambling. Almost victimless, or, right? Like, victimless. Yeah. Now, you know, obviously you get into drug trafficking, you get yeah. into much dicier. <laughs> um, but then the violence, too. The violence is a means of control within the organization. So, mm-hmm. you know, th- there have been innocent people killed in mob wars and skirmishes by misidentification and such. But for the most part, it's an internal thing. Mm-hmm. So you can look on to that guy whose face is you know, blown apart, splattered on the floor and be like gawking in the mirror or gawking in the window. There's, there's a great photo in my most recent book, Garden State Gangland, which is about the mob in Jersey. And it's a, it's a photo of Willie Moretti after he was shot and killed. And he's laying on the floor of this uh, restaurant, you know, his head's half off, there's blood all over the place. And there's throngs of outlookers at the window, like all cupping their hands, trying to peek in and get a glimpse. And mm. I think that kind of... That photo really probably answers the question better than anyone. There's there's a kind of a perverse um, uh, 
you know, fascination with it. And I think it bears itself out not only in America, but in other cultures, yeah. in Japan with the Yakuza or Russia with Russian gangsters. And I think it's, it's a deep part of American or a deep part of human psychology is that you know you know, 95% of people toe the line and mm. pretty normal, bland lives. And then, you know, you look at someone like Henry Hill, and I think there's the line in Goodfellas where he said, you know, those guys working nine to five job were schmucks. Or, yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So, hey, who wouldn't want to go party all night long and just have cash coming in and go to Vegas every weekend? And, you know, it's. I've got this idea that, like, there, there's the echoes of, like, the Puritan values that this country was kind of founded on. And people are sort of constantly uh, trying to reject that, whether it's a, a conscious decision or not. Um, and so I think, yeah, something like it seems bad to be gambling, even le legal gambling. Like it feels like a bit of an illicit activity, like I'm doing something a little bit naughty. Um, I, you know, I'm not a psychologist either, but I think maybe there's a little bit something to that. There could be, and, and bringing in that part, the Puritan values, I, th I think it's interesting too. If you look at it from kind of um, a more sociological aspect, is you know most of these were immigrant communities that mm. were kind of on the outsides, whether it was you know the Irish or the Italians or the Jewish or the Greeks. You know, at one time they were that that outside group that was kind of left to their own devices, or uh, you know the Chinese, uh, same thing. Uh, so. And I think part of that is looking at these kind of unique subcultures, you know, take the mafia, for example, you know, grew up from, you know, transplanted from Sicily, but mm. the, the Americanized version grew up in the in the neighborhoods of the Lower East Side or, you know, the little Italy's of Cleveland or Detroit. And at that time, you know, Jewish immigrants, Irish immigrants, Italian immigrants weren't really looked fondly upon, right. the, you know, the rest of the of the country. So I think they develop these subcultures. And one of the interesting things, too, when you talk about the mafia, and I think another kind of fascinating thing for me is even now, there's, it is a subculture in and of itself, uh, just like gangsters, like mm. how they interact from political, like their own internal politics and how, you know, these families are structured. And, you know, there's kind of a fascinating look. And it, it, you can't really call it a secret society because <laughs> everyone knows about it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Anyway. I think that's a really good point because... You see something like the movie Scarface, which had such a a large impact on like um, lower income urban culture and like rap and hip hop culture mm -hmm. because it was like a rags to riches story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, for just for the sake of clarity, like before I get into some of the history, if we're saying the word mafia, are we specifically referring to Italian organized crime, or is that sort of a catch-all now? It, well. Um, if you look at it really specifically, the mafia refers to Sicilian organized crime. Even in oh. Italy, there's the Sicilian mafia. There's okay. also the uh, um, Sacra Corona Unita from Puglia. There's the Nidragata from, uh, from uh, uh, Calabria. There's the uh, Camorra out of Naples. So, you know, the Sicilian mafia, the mafia itself refers to that core Sicilian group, okay. it has now simply become kind of a catch-all of yeah, okay. the mob, the mafia, you know, the Russian mafia, the Japanese mafia. They all have their own names, but it's uh, over the years it's kind of evolved into this descriptor of any kind of organized crime. Okay. It is a type of mafia. So Cool. 
So in preparation for this conversation, I crammed um, Cigar City Mafia, especially because we're here in Tampa and I'll, I'll keep most of the focus here, but I, I do have some questions about some other places. Yep. But um, specifically here, and I guess maybe in a lot of places throughout the country, um, this organized crime really starts with prohibition and then subsequently the bootlegging industry? There was mafia activity prior to that. Okay. Um, there, there's a couple researchers who have done a really good job of uncovering mafia activity um, in New Orleans, you know, into the post-Civil War era. Whoa. So it, they've kind of pushed that timetable back a couple decades into the late 1800s. Certainly by the early 1900s and a lot of with that great wave of immigration that came at that time, you see the origins of organized crime and specifically the mafia in these um, cities around the country. Most of that was preying on their own brethren, whether it was black hand activity where they would, um, you know, they would kidnap, like, say, a rich Italian merchant. They would send mm. the family a ransom letter with the imprint of a black hand. And this became wow. kind of like a... Uh, um, you know, a way to get money. And what what researchers have found out, too, is that a lot of this was also tied in between different cities. There's a really good book out that just came out recently called um, Inspector Oldfield and the Black Hand about an early postal inspector in the early 1900s who uncovers this Black Hand organization that's operating between a few different cities uh, in the Midwest and East Coast. So that's really where this starts. and But... It's, it's smaller, it's more low-key, it doesn't have the reach. It's really confined to the immigrant communities. It's okay. When prohibition starts, when bootlegging, rum running becomes the dominant moneymaker, that's when things really explode. Part of that is in order to become successful in doing that, you need a certain level of corruption or ties to people on the other side of the law, whether it's law enforcement or judges or politicians. Mm-hmm. That's when you start seeing not only the rise of larger syndicates, um, you start seeing a lot more violence over the racket, but you really start seeing how the political side and the corruption starts to form that becomes a basis for why the mafia stayed in power for so long. I'm going to put a pin in that thought because I want to come back to it because I'm really, really curious about sort of that that collusion. Um, But something that I was really interested to, to learn about and hear was sort of the numbers and, and bolita. Can you explain what that is for, for people who might not know? Yeah, so the, the, the numbers, the best way to explain it, it's pretty much exactly like the lottery, but it wasn't run by the state. It was run by organized crime syndicates. And depending on who was running numbers, you would... Um, you would get your numbers and you would play it different ways. But but at the base level, say say you were selling numbers, I would come up to you in the 1920s or 30s, and this existed, you know, well into the late 20th century in a lot of cities. Yeah. I'd pay you, you know, a dollar and I'd pick three numbers or pick a number, and that would be playing the numbers. Pretty much like the lottery. You didn't go to your Publix or your local grocery store to do it. You went to a guy on the corner selling it. You went to... Um, to a Belita house. Sometimes you'd go in Tampa, the ice cream man or the butcher would be selling them. Some cops were selling Belita. Wow. And depending on who you bought it from, 
they would get the winning bolita number a variety of different ways. The oldest way was having the balls that were numbered one to a hundred, and they would throw bolita at the casinos, and that was a a popular way to to get bolita. But also, it kind of morphed into a general number. So you would, you know, say you would get your numbers from the last three numbers of the Dow Jones average for the day. That would be your winning bolita number. Uh, somebody else would take it from the Cuban National Lottery. Everyone would derive their winning numbers differently. And it was a, it was an easy way. If you were, especially during the Depression, you know, you can bet a nickel or a dime, went 50 bucks, you yeah. know, 100 bucks. It was big money. This came out of Cuba? Belita itself came out of uh, Cuba. Uh-huh. Um, uh, you know what? I'm going to backtrack on that comment okay. one second because I'm... Uh, uh, I'm drawing a blank as to whether it was Spain or Cuba, okay. how it came originally uh, into Tampa. Um, but yeah, it was brought in there. Belita itself, the game of Belita, the numbers racket existed in cities around the country. So Belita was really a specific game tied to those balls that were numbered, okay. um, made out of wood or ivory, and they would throw it into a sack, and they would shake the sack up, and they would toss it into the crowd. It was called throwing Belita. Someone would grab onto one of the balls, they would come over and they would cut the bag, and that would be the winning Belita number, whatever ball was in their hand. Um, that was really a specific game called Belita. Then, much like Mafia becomes a catch-all phrase, Belita becomes a catch-all phrase for any kind of numbers that are going on. And you mentioned in the book how even that became rigged because if you, you know, one in one out of a hundred. So if you're picking one, then that's your odds one out of a hundred. But if you add sand or weight 10 of the balls, like one of those is going to fall out first. And now your odds are one in 10 and you could bet those 10 if you're the person that rigged it and knew it. Yeah. And if you're not, it's rigged even more against you. Yeah. I do the math right in my head. But uh, yeah, it's funny if um, University of South Florida has a collection of Belita balls that are made out of wood Oh, cool! Uh, in their collection. And they have, if you pick them up, there are some numbers that are really heavy. Um, so those, you know, you can tell even by looking at an old set that there were some rigged. And I think that's probably one of the things that led it to change into more of a general numbers racket because people started getting wise to yeah. <laughs> the game being rigged. Do you know who uh, the comedian Joey Diaz is? Yeah, he's on um, Rogan's podcast once in a while, right? He is, yeah. yeah. Um, I actually heard one or two things I think him. you would be amazing on his because um, he's Cuban and you know, his mom owned a bar, I believe in Manhattan, but he's he's kind of from Jersey. And and he talks all the time about like yeah, the numbers that even all the way up in New York and New Jersey, these numbers would be pulled down in Cuba and it would affect like the, you know, yeah. unofficial lottery that they were having all the way up north in, in New Jersey. I think that's fascinating. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it, it and really what killed Belita and illegal gambling in or that aspect of illegal gambling in in Florida and Tampa area was the lottery. Once the lottery became, oh wow, it, you know, it still existed, but it wasn't as uh, prevalent. Mm. Um, so it's interesting because your book starts out with what what we've discussed: uh, bootlegging, bolita, uh, insurance fraud, like insuring uh, homes and, and even furnishing them and then burning them down mm-hmm. and, and collecting on that money. And then it goes into just a, a quite, it's quite violent. It's just like family turnover after family turnover. You talk about um, wall and, and, and traficante. How did you go about 
getting all of the information for this book because it it's dense with uh, a ton of news, and I'm just wondering if like if some of these families like don't want that information being out there. Well, um, well, there's two parts of that. The first thing is is my research process. My research process has changed a lot since this book came out, um, and, and I've, I've acquired so much more information now. In fact, I'm mm. kind of kicking around maybe in for the 20th, doing an updated version of it. Because um, this was almost 15 years ago? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but when I started researching this, um, you know, I start with the low-hanging fruit newspapers uh, sent away for some FBI Freedom of Information Act requests, oh, wow. files and talk to law enforcement people, especially retired law enforcement, tend mm. to be more talkative about stuff they've done. Yeah. I had a hard time getting primary sources on the other side of the law and family to talk. It was because Tampa is such a small city, and even though it's a big metropolis now, the old Tampa is still a small, mm. everyone knows each other. It was a little difficult, and I understand that. Uh, after the book came out, it really opened up a lot of doors. Um, my second book, The Silent On About Traficante, I, I was able to interview a lot more people. And um, I, I think over time, as people become more comfortable with this being out there, sure, there's people that aren't super happy. But one of the things I think is important to understand is, um, well, two things. Number one, as a writer, you're limited by the information you have available to you. Certainly, you know, when you're talking about a group that doesn't have meticulous records or right. you know, their inner workings. Uh, but also, uh, you know, I try to be as accurate as possible and I try to back everything up. Um, I don't want to get sued for, for libel. You right. don't want to anger people unnecessarily. And, and understanding that, too, when I did the introduction to my new book, Garden State Gangland, the introduction was about my grandfather. Hmm. So airing my family story. So if someone says, oh, you know, you're you're... You're just picking on certain people or something. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm telling a part of Tampa history. And it, when I tell this Jersey history, I'm telling my family's history as part of that, too. But, you know, this book is really, I think, an essential piece of the history of Tampa, the, um, the overall history of Tampa, mm. because there were so much connections between what happened here organized crime-wise and what happened generally as the city of Tampa evolved and grew and matured. yeah. Um, coming back to that, uh, sort of the, the necessity of the involvement of law enforcement and government, uh, is it fair to say that sort of like the illicit activities would not have been possible without that uh, or to the scale that it to was? To the scale. Okay. Yeah. I think you can always do illicit activities without that, but the scale of it becomes difficult. The scale of it becomes difficult, and I think the fact that if you know if you are providing alcohol for people that are suddenly denied it, uh, it it's a little bit easier to to justify if you were taking money from someone to look the other way than if it was drugs. Although drugs, you know, kind of supplanted that in terms of the corruption mm. aspect of it, but. Um, Anywhere you see the mafia grow and how it grew, there was an absolute level of political and, uh, and law enforcement. And maybe not so much law enforcement in the federal sense, but more the local law enforcement um, uh, corruption. Yeah, there's a, 
I've seen a lot of that overseas, even to this day. I'm not necessarily talking about mafia, um, but there's a in a lot of countries that I've been to. If you if if there's a traffic stop or if somebody's busted with like a small amount of marijuana or something like that, like there's a lot of okay, here's my bribe. Um, you get to avoid jail. I'll take my bribe and, and we'll move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I think certainly, you know, from an economic standpoint, and then and this is maybe just me surmising a little bit based on some, you know, things I've read and talked to. You know, if you're making a small salary, exactly, yeah. someone offers you a few hundred dollars, it's, you know, it's, it's enticing. It's enticing. And certainly, you know, the one thing people, I think, don't always understand, too, is prohibition kind of bled right into the Depression. So you, uh, you have an era there where people were, weren't making a lot. There was a lot of financial and economic difficulties, and these guys are flush with cash. Right. Mind if I bring something through your marina tonight on this boat in the middle of the night? Here's a hundred dollars for your trouble. You know? Yeah. So. And the belief is that those those tunnels in Ebor were to funnel uh, either like human trafficking or bootlegging of alcohol, right? Yeah. So yeah, the, the the tunnels that were recently discovered, well rediscovered, they were always there. Um, were most likely originally purposed as drainage tunnels. Uh, oh, okay. But there's evidence, there's a lot of evidence, uh, both anecdotal, um, that they were used. And there are other tunnels that were in Ybor City between specific buildings that were definitely used to store booze and illicit materials underground, especially during Prohibition. Uh, there's a house I recently did a history for uh, just north of Ybor City that has a huge underground chamber in, in the backyard that... That was raided in 1927, and they found Whoa. a significant amount of alcohol in there. So, yeah, there were some areas where that was used. And interestingly, you brought up the human smuggling. That was another uh, money-making activity in Tampa, um, which was kind of unique. A lot of people, certainly I think it's germane to current political conversations of illegal immigration and such, but uh, that kind of smuggling was going on back all the way back in the 19-teens, 1920s. Yeah, I actually thought about that when I was reading this um, because you talk about um, the amendment that you know put prohibition into process, and it seems like uh, with some of the laws, in, including with human trafficking, like as soon as it's on the books, there are. I hope it's fair to say, even like lawmakers who are willing to um, not abide by it yeah. <laughs> at the very start, and it seems to me it's like I don't know. It's almost like did you. Did you pass that legislation because it would create um, a market for it? Like, I, I, I don't know if I'm being clear, but with, with prohibition, it almost seems like, how could you not know that this was going to happen? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, you got to wonder about that. Certainly with prohibition, I, I, you, you, they had to know that there was going to be people that were going to be getting their their liquor. Mm. I don't think they really saw the rise of these criminal syndicates to the extent they did. Um, but at the same token, you know, there was a lot of activity against it. Certainly, you know, federal agents raiding stills and operations and certainly mm. the whole war against uh, Al Capone. Mm, but there's probably just as many that were turning the other way, you know, and just allowing this to, to go through. There's a... Um not in Tampa, but maybe more towards, um, maybe more towards like Clearwater. There's a there's a big like manor almost, and and someone had mentioned to me like, oh yeah, one of the rumors is that that was like a house for Al Capone. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So, 
Al Capone spent time in St. Petersburg. We know that for a fact. He owned property in Pinellas County, um, which is, uh, for those listening outside the area, is the county where St. Petersburg is located across the bay from Hillsborough County, which is where Tampa is located. He owned a good deal of property in Pinellas County in his own name. He also owned it with Johnny Torrio, who is a mentor in the Chicago mob, and Jake Guzik, known as Greasy Thumb Guzik. What he owned is well-documented. What people say he owned is pretty much every other piece of <laughs> property uh, from the yeah. 1920s. It's become kind of like the George Washington slept here of the Tampa Bay areas. You know, any big house from the 20s, oh, I heard Capone owned that or Capone built that. And in reality, most likely not because okay. the stuff he owned and, and did down here was in his own name. Now, I don't specifically know the manner you're talking about, and I can look back into my files and records, but I've been, you know, I've been asked many times like oh you know we have this old house and somebody told us Al Capone you stone it and you know I'll cross-reference the address and it's not so yeah but it's fun story so you know you don't want to crush it too bad but <laughs> in terms of personalities probably Capone is like one of the most uh well-known mobsters from you know American history and maybe even like globally it, is it fair to say that maybe like the Biggest name or most important name in relation to the Tampa area is Traficante? Yeah, Santo Traficante Jr., certainly. Can you give just like a, for anyone who maybe doesn't know who he is, like a brief synopsis of who he was and the activities that he did? Yeah, so his father, Santo Traficante Sr., was head of the mob mafia here locally before him. Uh, he was handed probably around 1950, because at that time we start seeing another kind of internal war for control of the mafia in Tampa. Basically, he was, uh, he was born in Tampa. He was an, uh, kind of an unassuming guy, if you see him, had you know glasses, wore short sleeve button-down shirts, kind of looked like an accountant in a lot of wow. photos you see of him. Uh, very quiet, very... Very nice and genial from people that I know that have met him and, and knew him personally. Um, commanded a lot of respect in, in organized crime circles, not just in Tampa, but he had connections into the New York mob, Chicago, mm-hmm. very close to Carlos Marcelo in New Orleans. He owned a good deal of uh, property, including hotels in pre-Castro Cuba. He was very active in, in, in Havana in the 1950s. After Castro takes over, Santo is jailed briefly there, then comes back to the United States. He gets embroiled in CIA plots against Castro. Um, the whole, you know, that whole rabbit hole of the JFK assassination conspiracy, his name pops up a lot in that. Um, he is involved in, you probably saw the movie Donnie Brasco at Al Pacino. And yeah. John, you know, he's part of the whole Donnie Brasco case, huh. that whole scene. So he's a... Uh, He's not as flashy. He's not a John Gotti. He avoided the cameras. You know, there's there are a lot of photos of him, but not an overwhelming amount. Mm-hmm. He was pretty much kept to himself in terms of not courting that kind of media publicity. And from from guys in the underworld that I've spoke to, he he was when he was young, he was generally kind of feared a little bit because he was so quiet a lot of people said well he you know he got things done and he his his word was the word in tampa mm. and uh he also spent a lot of time in miami so his reach extended also across florida in general okay but uh, one of the interesting things though and um 
people might not know this is, is city, cities, specifically Miami and Las Vegas, were considered open cities. So any mafia figures from anywhere in the U.S. can go operate in them without having to like, get like permission. Territorial without? Yeah. Wow. So. That's interesting. Um, how, like, how would that be? It was, would there be one person that like headed up Miami and was like, okay, like this is, it's, it's Well, I think when Miami started coming into its own, a bunch of different guys would go down there and they just kind of all oh. agreed. Because Traficante, a lot of people did go see him in Miami, but he didn't run Miami because so many New York guys were coming down, guys from the Midwest were coming down there. Okay. So I assume at some point it was kind of agreed upon, gentleman's agreement that, hey, and same thing with Las Vegas. Your book ends with... Uh, you know, basically the present day, like coming into the the, the 21st century here. Um, I guess maybe you need to be a little careful about what you say about current things, but like how prevalent do you think the the mafia still is if, if we're looking at Tampa today? Uh, not very okay. in Tampa at all. Um, and, and even in the ensuing years since, since that book's come out, um, you know, some of the Players that are, were still alive at the end of this have passed on. Mm. Uh, most of them didn't have their kids go into the business. Uh, a lot of them that were active, say, in the 80s and stuff, moved money into legitimate enterprises. Uh, there wasn't the um, the neighborhoods to draw from. You know, you didn't have Ybor City, that neighborhood to draw a lot mm. of guys from. So it kind of faded away, and in much the same as other smaller cities in the U.S. where the mob were active, cities like St. Louis, Denver, uh, Kansas City, where the mob at one time was very prevalent, very powerful, Cleveland, now it's you know virtually non-existent, just kind of faded away with time. The one thing that's interesting about Tampa, as opposed to some of the other cities, is that there wasn't any real... There were a lot of arrests over the years and law enforcement activity, but it wasn't like you know any major law enforcement initiative that kind of crushed the family, so to say. A lot of it was just assimilation and kind of fading away into the sunset, if you will, kind yeah. of using a, a tire trope, but that's, that's kind of what happened. We mentioned briefly before we were recording here that um, the area of Brooklyn that I lived in is still kind of old school Brooklyn in a way like Bensonhurst is still really like Italian. Like a lot of families will have like the, the split level home where the kids, once they grow up, like take over the upstairs part and they just like the family just repeats in those homes. <laughs> those homes are, are quite valuable. Now there's a lot of still like old school Italian types of places to eat. Um, even like the Russian parts of like uh, Brighton beach, uh, bath beach, you'll hear every couple of years like a whole house gets murdered. Or I was mentioning, uh, I think back in June, uh, around the Bay Ridge area, there were five guys arrested. And like one of the guys, like like those nicknames, like something suits, right? Like yeah. <laughs> um, you're writing about Jersey. I think most people would know Jersey and New York as sort of uh, one of the first places that comes to like our collective thoughts about where the mob would be located. Uh, I sort of touched on this earlier, but... Are, are you ever nervous, like uncovering some of this stuff in, in the present day, or researching it, or speaking to former mobsters or current? Or I really try to stick more, more to historical stuff. And if I'm doing stuff that's maybe more current, um, it's stuff that's, you know, kind of 
again, that I have the backing of, that it's stuff that's public record or current cases. Okay. Um, I get approached a lot with current information, and I, a lot of times I choose not, well, most of the time I choose not to do anything and say, hey, thanks for reaching out. There's times when I've been like, thanks for reaching out. You really need to talk to the cops about this. Yeah, I was going to say, has law enforcement ever asked you anything? Uh, yeah, occasionally. Wow. Uh, mostly like in historical context. Okay. Um, uh, one of the things, uh, when they've had turnover, some of the local law enforcement um, agencies, once a guy came, we met for lunch and just went over kind of a database of some mobsters that were still around, you know, if I historical information, just to kind of supplant what, or supplement, I should say, what, what they had. Uh, but, you know, I've, I've gotten people call me up and like, hey, I know something's going on here. I'm like, I, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do about right. call the cops. Yeah. But... I think I think I find kind of more fascination from a historical perspective. I'm not really an investigative reporter, so hitting the beat for like a current scoop is is not kind of my comfort zone. I mean, I probably could, but it's not really where I want to concentrate. I like looking at things from the historical perspective. Um, that being said, some of it does tie into current stuff, so I do try to make those those linkages when I when I can. But but I'm. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm often careful about that, and I'm careful about what I write about. There's, there's a lot of things that I that I will keep, you know, keep away from writing about, just from, from sake of uh, uh, safety, one, sellability, yeah. another. I mean, right. people love mafia stuff, especially historical. So, um, and I'll wrap up soon because I know you got to get running. But we talked about some movies. Are there are, are there any movies or books? Um, I mean, yours reads as like, in an interesting way, but pretty strictly nonfiction. Yeah. Are, are there any movies or books that you think sort of get it more right than others that are like pretty accurate to what you know to be the history of mob activity in the country? Yeah, I think, yeah, I'm cognizant of the fact that, again, I'm writing from, from the outside looking in. So there's obviously a lot of books written by former mob guys from the inside looking out. Mm. And, and even those come with a bias and those come with, um, with, with a lens that they're looking through that might not always be, be accurate. But there, there are some writers out there that, that I really admire that I think have done a really good job of kind of bridging that gap have done a really good job of exploring the topic in more depth. Um, and, and, and as my writings kind of matured and evolved, I, you know, I try to emulate, I, I, I kind of have a, um, like a set way. Like if you saw a paragraph of writing, I wrote a sentence or two in it. I, you know, I can, people can kind of pick out the way I write, but yeah, there are some really good writers out there. I think that, that, that dig into the subject one of the big telling things when you read a mob book, and especially for people that have researched this for a long time, is if they repeat the same tired mm. myths that have been debunked long ago. Um, if they, you know, you're going to occasionally get typos and and make certain facts wrong, and that you know that's that's going to happen one or two. But if you see wholesale, you know, repeating of things from stuff that's been discredited in the past. That's that's usually a telltale sign. Um, if someone's basically rehashing things that have been written, that's kind of a telltale sign that that's probably not looked at. You know, they, they didn't really dig down deep to find new, accurate information. Okay. And there's a lot more stuff available now. 
Um, at the same token, there's stuff that, you know, over the years has kind of disappeared or been purged from, you know, official records. So, mm. but, that's uh, but there's a lot more that that's available now online. It, it's from a research point of view, it's easier to go in and find information, just the speed of the internet, even just finding where to go is a lot quicker now to find that information. Um, but getting back to your original question, are there books that are more accurate than others? Yeah, I think they're, especially I think in the last 10 years, there's just been some fantastic books that have been written about organized crime and the mob that have really kind of, you know, drilled through the old, you know, myths that surround a lot of these guys and events, um, whether it's New York or Chicago, and really got to the true story underneath. Um, Are there any sort of like tropes or stereotypes that, that come to your mind when you think about this stuff that like if you were to see it in a movie, you'd be like, oh, come on, that's not true. Yeah, there's um, you know, there's a myth that when uh, Lucky Luciano and, and Lansky and them killed uh, Joe the Boss and Salvatore Maranzano, there was this thing called the Night of the Sicilian Vespers, where mob bosses around the country were all killed on a single night, and you know that's been kind of repeated over the years. That never I think happened. Had that in here too, yeah, yeah, people have kind of dug into that and said, yeah, you know what, it didn't really happen that way. Um, I think if you read any of those, like. And I don't want to call them exploitation books, but there are a lot of books like in the 50s that came out, like this one that I have called Mafia with an exclamation mark. And it was just kind of you know, rehashing stories that have been told over and over. And kind of like the game of telephone, as it gets rehashed, stuff just gets embellished, um, you know. Yeah. So that that's one immediately that comes to mind. And then simple things like, um, you know, if I read a book that talks about Traficante and they call him Santos with an S at the end. I know they didn't do their basic research because it's Santo, and I see that a lot. And I'm like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> I once had a guy argue with me online that his name was Santos because he saw it in a book, and I had to, I showed him a photo of his birth certificate, death certificate, marriage license. I said, nah, I think you're wrong. And he Whoa. still held on to it. And I was like, I just don't even know what to say on that. Well, I'll implore people to, to read the book because, um, and I, maybe I'll even read a passage at some point. Uh, when the episode's finished, but there's so many little stories that aren't even the big story that are fascinating. I'm going to get the names wrong, but I think in some way Luciano was connected to um, one instance when actually like cops or guys posing as cops went and, and murdered a guy. Yeah, that was Maranzano. Okay. New York, yeah. And then they're coming down the stairs as a guy was coming up to meet about murdering <laughs> an yeah. opponent. And it's just... Those those little stories are 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 fascinating. It's 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 really like the Wild West. Well, two of the things that that really interest me when I read about mob stuff is, is number one, finding those stories that haven't been told before, mm. and finding those guys that aren't really as well known because that those are sometimes the ones that really are the more interesting yeah. characters. Because uh, let's you brought up Capone. You know, Capone is known as one of the most preeminent gangsters, definitely the most recognizable gangster. In reality, he was only in power for a short time, and there were guys in Chicago that were far more powerful, became far more powerful and more influential that you probably haven't really heard of, like Tony Accardo. Um, you know, people in the that know about mob stuff have heard of him, but the general public, by and large, if you threw a photo of him up, would not know who he was, mm -hmm. as opposed to Capone. So... And that's kind of a little bit more well-known example, but there are a lot of guys uh, in my latest book, 
and I don't want to sound like I keep plugging it, <laughs> but the Jersey. But, no, plug it, man. People um, should buy these. Garden State Gangland available. On- <laughs> um, I talk about Jerry Katina, who was a very powerful mof- mobster in the New Jersey area. Again, not really as well known. You know, his name doesn't pop up every time you yeah. read about, about the mob. So those are the guys I like researching, writing about, finding stories about. Stuff that hasn't really been uncovered. And and as many books have been written about the mafia, there's been so much written about, you know, New York and Chicago. There's still a lot of stories there, but there's all these other places around the country, fascinating cities like Denver. There's been a couple books on Denver, St. Louis, um, Milwaukee, San Jose, California. There's these little cities where there were small mafias that haven't really been explored mm. fully yet, I think. So uh, it's, there's still a lot of great stories out there. Yeah. Um, it, it, the, you made an interesting point because it, I was thinking about even like it's almost like um, a schoolyard lesson where it's like the guy who's kind of silent and, and, and doesn't, maybe a better way to say it is like the guy who's making the most noise is usually not the toughest guy or like yeah. the most badass guy, right? So that would be interesting because if you are doing a lot of illicit things, you probably wouldn't want to draw much attention to that. <laughs> Yeah, and um, I always like talking about what gangsters drive. And you know, Santo Traficante drove a Dodge Dart. I can't think of a less uh, of a less yeah, yeah. mob car. You know, he didn't have the big Cadillac and the fancy this and that. Uh, so yes, a lot of those older guys were, were definitely tried to keep it a, at least somewhat below the radar. I I'll, I'll end it in, on sort of this thought. I, I I have quite a a cynical outlook on. Uh, the people who lead us. Um, did you watch The Wire? I did not watch it fully, but that's on my list to catch okay. up with. Yeah. There's a really interesting part in which Omar is sort of like, Omar robs drug dealers, mm-hmm. right? And he walks around with a shotgun and he's sort of like the gangster of gangsters. And he was being questioned in court, and I'm paraphrasing here because I don't remember it exactly, but um, the prosecutor said to him something like, you know, are you happy with the fact that you do all these awful things? You're ripping people off. And he basically said, well, we're doing the same thing. I got the shotgun, you have the suit. So to me, it's almost like when when we mentioned that sort of collusion, it's almost right in our faces a lot of the time nowadays where it's like, you know, it doesn't have to be underground illicit mob activity, but there's a lot of like bad things going on that are, you know, under the guise of, um, I don't want to say good necessarily, but gangsters have taken a new form maybe is a, is a, is a way yeah, to say that. Yeah. There'll always be that there for yeah. sure. For sure. And it's funny you mentioned The Wire because this is, uh, as we're recording this, it was 20 years ago, I think it was maybe this week, or that The Sopranos premiered. Talk about another you know, oh, really? groundbreaking yeah. piece of art rooted in the gangster. Yeah. Well, both reality and the myth, I think that, that that show did a really good job of kind of bridging that gap between something that from an artistic standpoint, like The Godfather, mm. was really incredibly well done. And from a reality point of like Goodfellas was true to what it was like. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, how can people find out about you, buy the books, learn more? Plug some um, stuff. Yeah. So my website is scottditchie.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-D-E-I-T-C-H-E.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, my books are available uh, through my website or uh, Amazon. 
or most of your local independent bookstores as well. Awesome. And people know this, but as always, they can go to the show notes and they can just click a link and I'll have links to all that stuff. So Scott, this is awesome. And thank uh, you for having me. Enlightening. So yeah, thank you. Cheers. That is a wrap, Voyagers. I will still be down here in Florida for another episode or two and hopefully bring you some cool, interesting stuff. Thank you to Scott. Thank you to all of you Voyagers for being patient on my month off. Thank you for listening. Thank you for checking out Patreon. And as always, everybody, please, please, please take care of each other. Till next time.